Matthew chapter 16. There are certainly some crossing points from the last hour and what you'll be hearing in this hour. In some ways, that's not unusual because it seems to happen quite frequently. Uh, and I suppose in another sense also, that's a good thing because we, if we're um, ministering the truth of God's Word and the Gospel, there ought to be some places at which we're crossing uh, no matter what portion of Scripture we may be dealing with. But uh, the point of view and the emphasis will be different. And so Jesus, or Matthew, is telling us about Jesus as he is making his way on his earthly pilgrimage to the destination, really, for his coming into the world, and that is to Jerusalem and what will take place at Jerusalem. And so Matthew writes, and this will be our these verses will be our text for today, verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, Peter has just confessed that which was revealed to him by Jesus' Father, which is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, only the Christ, the Son of the living God could accomplish what Jesus emphatically sets forth in verses 18 and 19, which we saw in the last message from this passage. I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Of course, Peter and the other apostles would serve a primary role in what Jesus is saying and what he's, what he's, what he's establishing and what has continued since the establishing But Jesus is the reason for it. On this rock, the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
But knowing who Jesus was was not the whole story, which I emphasized in the last message to some degree. Peter and the disciples were not at all clear on what it meant for him to be the Christ, the Messiah. And of course, that's going to stand out in our in our text, isn't it? In verse 22, when Peter rebukes Jesus, there's a reason why Peter rebukes Jesus. It was surely at the least a lack of understanding. And in verse 20, when Jesus commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ, that has caused some quandary in the minds of of some, but There's a reason for that, and I think it revolves around the fact that not only did the populace, the Jewish populace, not understand what the Christ or the Messiah was all about and what he really was to accomplish. They were thinking politically in a Jewish fashion, nationally in a political way. Not only did they not understand, but the disciples didn't understand. And it would have been, it would have been preliminary. It would have been, it would have been Uh, uh, it would have been out of order for the disciples to go announcing Jesus is the Christ, meaning in their minds what they thought it meant, which was really somewhat complicit with what the rest of the nation meant. Something of a political mind, really the mind of men, the things of men, as Jesus says in verse 23. It wasn't until after his resurrection that these disciples preached publicly and boldly that this Jesus was indeed the Christ. In fact, that was a major emphasis if you read through the book of of Acts and even even other of, of the epistles that this Jesus is the Christ. They did preach it boldly, but not until after the resurrection. God's redemptive purpose for this world carried out through His Son, the Christ, involved a very different path than what was expected. And some of this really is is um, an expression of what Michael just expressed in the in the past hour. The the mindset of men is very different from the mindset of God. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus says what he says, you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And we'll touch on that this morning. Jesus makes it very clear that knowing and confessing who he is which is fundamental, it is important. Even reaching back into the triune God, the relationship in God before anything was made, all of that is critically important because everything that is flows from that. But that cannot be separated from from the work that His Father sent Him to do to reconcile sinners to Himself. And so, Matthew says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. From that time, from the time of their confession, they've, they've acknowledged who he is. It seems that they've got, they've got that, but they don't have everything. They, they don't have all of the understanding that they need. And so what he says to his disciples here, 
will be repeated and added to as they began to make their way to Jerusalem over the next probably six months to a year. Jesus is going to continue to inform them of what is coming. It's time for him to speak plainly about what to expect as he begins to set his face toward Jerusalem to accomplish the salvation of his people. And as we'll see, Satan knows the significance of the sufferings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I am convinced this is one area in which he continually seeks to bring distortion, distraction, to turn our eyes and our minds away from the things of God toward the things of men, blinding sinners to the necessity of the cross work of the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Jesus, in verse 21, sets forth the divine necessity of going to Jerusalem. Do you see that? He says, or Matthew says, describing what Jesus was doing from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew what was coming. His journey to Jerusalem was intentional. It was time to go. He must go. He didn't walk into an unknown trap. We see this at other times in the life of Jesus. He knew what the consequences were by him going to Jerusalem. He, as we heard in the last hour, gave his life freely in love. He did what he did. His life was not taken from him. And so Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus is not saying that his suffering, when he says that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. He's not saying that his suffering was inevitable because of the hostility of the Jewish leaders against him. That's not the point that he's making. In fact, their reaction to him in their blindness was part of the plan. Do you remember there's a strange statement really that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where he says, talking about the rulers, had they known who he was, had they known who he was, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Do you remember that? And so their very blindness to who he was, which was the blindness of unbelief, really was a part of the whole outworking of his crucifixion and that which would turn to the salvation of the world, Jew and Gentile. But what Jesus is saying here is that necessity is laid upon him. He says, to put it in the first person, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and be raised the third day. He must suffer. He knew that if he did not follow through 
with this suffering and death and resurrection, what he has stated back in verses 18 and 19 would simply fall flat. It would not happen. It would not occur. There would be no church. There would be no kingdom. There would be no gospel. There would be no message. There would be no keys. Satan would win. Death would win. Sin would win. And that can't happen. And so he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Representing the Jews. Representing, in one sense, the law. Representing that which was before, perhaps we could even say, representing the thieves and robbers that was mentioned in the last hour. And Jesus knew what was coming. Go over to chapter 20. And he speaks to his disciples as he's on his way into Jerusalem. Verse 17, now Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. It's interesting how Jesus repeats That particular phrase, the third day he will rise again or will be raised. He didn't avoid this suffering at the hands of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders in chapter 26 and verses 57 through 59. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. That was the Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish leaders. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. He must be killed. He must go to Jerusalem. And it was there that he must be killed. He must be killed. Now here, Jesus is simply stating the fact. He doesn't explain why. Now they had heard John say, you remember early on, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And later he will tell these same disciples that he came to give his life a ransom for many. And, of course, they had the Old Testament Scriptures as well. So there, you could argue that they should have been connecting the dots, but apparently they weren't. In fact, it won't be until after the resurrection that they truly grasp the significance of what Jesus is telling them. And I've told you before, you know, sometimes you'll hear things that preachers say, And they're saying it in such a way that it sounds like that if you don't believe that, you're not saved. And you think, well, I didn't even know that before today, but I thought I was saved already. Don't judge your salvation that way. okay? because we're growing, aren't we? We're growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as the disciples were were doing, 
And but these are things that they did not yet understand. But he understood. He knew that he must be killed. He knows his death is not simply at the hands of men. He says that he must be killed. And that was true. But there was something behind the activity of the hands of men, the wicked hands of men who slew him. This was something that God had ordained. This is something that was purposed in eternity. His death was the blood of the everlasting covenant. Of course, we have the full record of Scripture, so we can read what we're reading here and read into it what we already know. But the disciples didn't know this. They didn't understand this. But Jesus did. That His death was the blood of the everlasting covenant. It was the price of redemption which the God of peace ordained in eternity for the salvation of His sheep. He would be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is no small matter. This is really at the heart of why Jesus came into the world. Yes, the revelation of the Father. Yes, the revelation of God. But if there had been a revelation of God, but not this, we would be without hope in this world. We would be without salvation. His death was the fulfillment of all that had been foreshadowed under the Mosaic sacrificial system. This is why when John said, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes the way, takes away the sin of the world, there was that reference to the sacrificial idea that was seen in the Mosaic system. In fact, did you know that even in heaven, we have the picture of heaven in Revelation, and there is the picture of the Lamb, as it were, slain? And so that is a a picture that won't go away. That is fundamental to everything that we are as God's people and our relationship to God. But the point that I make here is that he knows that he must be killed. And this killing was not simply at the hands of men. Isaiah 53 was just read. Verses 5 and 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh has laid upon his servant. Remember, Michael read about the servant, the chosen, the elect servant in Isaiah 42. This is that servant. The suffering servant. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Please hang on to this thought. We're going to return to it. Toward the end of the message, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It wasn't just the hands of men. It wasn't just they who drove those nails. Something else was going on in that cross work. Something else was going on on that day. The Lord was bruising 
crushing. He has put him to grief. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. But then Jesus says, not only must he go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and not only must he go to Jerusalem and be killed, he must also be raised the third day. He must be. Must be. And of course, I'm not going to launch off into a message about the resurrection. We're familiar with the resurrection, but perhaps we, we aren't focused upon it as much as we should be. I can tell you the disciples here weren't focused upon it. They don't. It's as if they didn't even hear what Jesus was saying. But herein lies the hope of the gospel. Without the resurrection, Jesus' death would have been no more than a martyr's death. And it wasn't just a martyr's death. And hang on to that as well, because there are those throughout the history of what is called Christianity and are still this day who who view and still to this day view Christ and his life and his death as nothing more than that. But his disciples didn't yet get it. And it is as if all they hear Jesus saying is that he must suffer and that he must be killed. Peter clearly didn't understand his response in verse 22 betrays this this thought. Then Peter took him aside. It's the idea is almost like he took him by the shoulder. And this was a this was a kind gesture on Peter's part. It was in his mind a loving gesture on Peter's part. It it it, it wasn't simply that he was reprimanding Jesus. It was that he cared for his master. He loved his master. He didn't want harm to come to his master. You see. And he was thinking something other than what he should have been thinking. And so Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Saying, far be it from you, Lord. It's an interesting word that's used there, far be it from you, Lord. It's a word actually of mercy. Mercy upon you, Lord. Kindness. It's almost as if he say, may Yahweh not intend that for you. Or as some have translated, translated it very freely, God forbid, or may it never be. Perish the thought, Lord, that that, what you have just said, would be true of you. And then he states it very strongly, emphatically, this shall not happen to you. Why, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. It makes no sense that you would suffer. It, make no, it makes no sense that you would die. That doesn't fit my thinking, our thinking. You've, taught, you've taught us about a kingdom. Surely this, this can't be right. What about the kingdom that you've been telling us about? How are you going to establish and rule and lead? And how are we going to reign with you? How is this ever going to happen if you if you suffer and if you're killed? Again, it's as if they didn't hear raise the third day. And so while Peter's rebuke, I believe, was well intended, it's spoken in ignorance. 
He's definitely thinking according to the mind of a man and not the mind of God, as Jesus points out. He just could not reconcile what Jesus was saying must be with what He had confessed. Of course, we know that Peter's intended protection of Jesus was actually working against the very redemption that the God of peace purposed through the death and resurrection of the great shepherd of the sheep. Peter was an unintentional instrument of Satan. And so Jesus responds emphatically, equally emphatically, in verse 23. Nothing must stand in the way of His divine mission. Nothing. And so He says, He turns. And it's as if He looks Peter square in the eyes and says to Peter, some have actually said He looks beyond Peter. That is, Jesus sees who's really behind what Peter is saying. And He says, get behind Me. But He says it to Peter. Get behind. Behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. In Peter's rebuke, Jesus heard the voice of his arch enemy attempting to prevent him from what he knew could not be avoided if He would fulfill His work, the work that His Father gave Him to do, and return to the glory that He had with His Father. A glory that would include all that the Father gave to Him. Remember, connecting with what you heard in the last hour, He's receiving from His Father. And for Him... To give eternal life to as many as the Father gave to Him. He couldn't stop short of the cross. He couldn't stop short of suffering. Dying. And rising again. And so while Jesus is speaking to Peter, He addresses Satan. Because Satan had some idea. I don't know what all Satan knew. But you know, Satan was his chief adversary. By the way, he's our chief adversary as well. And lest I forget to say so later, Peter had a number of run-ins with Satan, didn't he? And he was very familiar with, with Satan. In fact, that's one of the reasons, I think, why he could write what he wrote in First Peter, in the epistle. He was writing from first-hand experience. This is, this is a, a devourer. He's like a, he's like a mighty lion seeking to destroy. That's his purpose. And Jesus is just the opposite. Jesus had already resisted the tempter in the wilderness who had proposed an alternative way to obtain the kingdoms of the world and their glory without any suffering. Do you remember that in Matthew chapter 4? Unless anyone think that that was just some sort of phony temptation. Think again. Jesus was really, truly a man. And it was truly a temptation that was put before Him. And I believe even in the passage we're looking at here, there was a true temptation that was being set before Jesus. 
There was a conflict. And in the first temptation that Satan brought to him in the wilderness, Jesus responded, away with you, Satan. In a very similar way that he responds here, get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus knew that only through sufferings could he bring many sons to glory. And by the way, I'm convinced that Satan probably at least had some idea of that same reality. That if Jesus could carry on and carry out what he came and intended to do, then he would be defeated and he would be destroyed. Remember in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, who had the power of death? The devil. And so Jesus was made. He, he took on our nature. He took on the nature of man that he might, by death, destroy him who had power over death. Right? Satan is seeking to prevent the glory of the cross. And so Jesus speaks harshly to Peter because Peter was unwittingly and yet truly standing in his way. Not at least at this point, understanding the purpose of God and what will unfold that very year. Jesus must die and he must be raised. Peter Jesus says, you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Satan was using Jesus' own disciple to trip him up, to put a stumbling block before him. Peter, the rock, was now a stumbling rock, stumbling block, an offense. But he was the Lord's. And the Lord wouldn't lose him, would he? In fact, later on he says, I prayed for you when he had another, when he was going to have another run in with Satan. But you see, Jesus indeed was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as the Christ, the Son of the living God, he was one with his Father. And while Peter didn't Mind the things of God, but the things of men. The Christ, the Son of the living God, minded the things of God. He knew the heart of God. He was one with His Father. And so He spoke the mind of His God. And He worked out the mind of His God, His Father. And thus, as we heard in the last hour, surely revealing to us the very heart of God. And though his will as a man was tried. And even here in the wilderness temptation and here and we'll see it again in the garden. His will was tried. Remember, he said, not my will, but thine be done. So though as a man, his will was tried, he learned obedience through suffering. And nothing, not even suffering, knowing what he was going to face, 
would prevent him from bearing the awful load required for the salvation of those the Father gave him. Peter, it's as if Jesus is saying in verse 23, Peter, I must suffer. I must be killed. And I must be raised the third day. And you need to get out of my way. I am headed for Jerusalem where it's all going to unfold. Now, Peter, as we've indicated, would go through more difficulty on his way to truly understanding the significance of the cross and the shedding of the blood of the Lamb of God. But learn he did, didn't he? In fact, as you as you read on in the New Testament and the life of Peter, you hear him on the day of Pentecost preaching a message. And he says these words in Acts 2, 23 and 24. Him, Jesus, being delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Now he understood. Jesus was by lawless hands, wicked hands, crucified and put to death. But it was according to the determined purpose of God. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Later on, as he stood before the Sanhedrin, perhaps some of these same individuals that Jesus had in mind that falsely accused him and sent him to Pilate. Peter spoke these words. In Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man stands here before you. By him, this man stands before you whole. And this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then later when he wrote First Peter, he said these words. First Peter 1, 18 through 21. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And I would and later on, Peter speaks of this. And of course, other places in Scripture we share in that glory. In fact, he'll talk about it later in Matthew 16, then first Peter 2, 23 and 24, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Now, brethren, we know that Satan was not successful in preventing the redemptive mission of the Son of God. 
But he continues to this day to twist the minds of men against the absolute necessity of his suffering, death, and resurrection. This is really important. You see, there's an idea, and it's it's not a small idea among just a remnant of professing Christians. It is a large idea that is rampant in the Christian community. And there are different degrees of it, and there are extremes of it. But it's something that we must guard against. And it goes something like this, that God who is love, would require and provide Himself the sacrificial offering to satisfy His justice, to reconcile sinners to Himself, cannot be true. Do you want me to repeat that? This idea that God who is surely a God who is love would not, this is the way it goes, we would not, this is not the kind of God who would require and provide Himself the sacrificial offering to satisfy His justice in order to reconcile sinners to Himself. Beloved, that's a stumbling block to many people. It was to the Jews. You remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. Now, it may have been for different reasons. And for the Jews, I mean, they were fixated on Finding their righteousness by way of the law, not through Christ alone and and the cross of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. But there are multitudes, and this is fresh on my mind because of the research I've had to do in recent weeks on the subject of the penal substitutionary death of Christ, which means that Christ in His death bore a penalty. In other words, He had had to die. And He had to rise again. in order to accomplish something that was real. Brethren, this has been a a problem, a conflict in the minds of professing Christians for a long time. Mr. Spurgeon commenting on these very verses said in his own day there was a, a problem. He said, those who at this day revile the substitutionary sacrifice of our Lord are fonder of the things that be of men than those that be of God. 
And he was saying this in this context. He went on to talk about the philanthropy of many of the churches of his day and the emphasis of the preachers about doing good and, and, and mercy and justice and social justice and whatever else. And, and that is what we're here for. That's, that's the gospel. And they, and they did not view the cross in any way as bearing the very wrath of God against sinners that liberated them into a relationship with God that then would flow forth into acts of mercy and justice in the world. In other words, they skipped the cross to get to some glory. I, in my research, I read a very disturbing article by a Baptist preacher, a contemporary Baptist preacher, who I don't, who I don't know. He, I don't know if he still pastors, but it was in Frankfort, Kentucky. And you can, if you're interested, you can, I, you can read the whole article. But it was disturbing. A Baptist preacher, so-called. And he said, Things like this. Jesus didn't die because God needed a sacrifice. Jesus died because the powers that be had him killed. In other words, God had nothing to do with it. He said, the God of Jesus, however, does not need to be propitiated. And I'm wondering, what what Bible are you reading? He went on to say, love does not need or require a sacrificial victim. Beloved, that's that message flows from the very beginning, when when an, an animal or animals were slain in the garden to clothe, there, there was a shedding of blood from the very beginning. And it flows all through redemptive history. Culminates at the cross. So that now there is no more shedding of blood. You remember, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That is what Jesus did on the cross. This man said, God is able to forgive freely without the substitutionary death of Christ. He just simply forgives because of who He is. But Jesus knew differently. Jesus knew that He was the one that Isaiah spoke of. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He has put Him to grief. My God, my God. Psalm 22, prophetic. My God, my God, why? Have you, you understand Jesus knew exactly what he was going to encounter and what was necessary for him to encounter. Why was he 
sweating, as it were, great drops of blood in the garden. Why? Why? He knew why he came into the world. And it was to give himself. And oh, how his father loved him. You know, we, we try to understand that. And so we say, you know, I can't imagine my, you know, my, my son having to do that with my, Abraham and, and Isaac kind of thing. I can't imagine having to do that. But brethren, we, 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 there is no way that we can enter into the infinity, the infinite magnitude of what was going on there on the cross. But Jesus knew that it had to be done. He'd never known. His relationship with His Father had never experienced anything like this, ever. But He says in John 12, and Michael referenced this in the last hour, but in John 12, I'm going to read it to you. Verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. And you see, it wasn't just because he was going to die on the cross. Come on, Jesus was a man. He could have faced martyrdom, couldn't he? As a man, many men have done that. Some people say, well, he was doing what he was doing as an example to the world. Well, come on, many could have done that. Many have done that. That's not why his soul is troubled. Now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. The old King James doesn't have a question mark there, but I think it's proper to have a question mark there. Should I ask you to save me from this hour? Unless you connect that with his prayer in the garden where he actually did say, is there another way? Right? Essentially. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. For this purpose. That's why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Oh, the Father. Sometimes I... I wonder about this whole idea. The father, did he turn his back upon his son when he was bearing our guilt upon the tree? And I, I have to say, yes and no. You know, yes and no. It certainly wasn't a permanent turning his back. He couldn't. This was his son, you see. But he can't look upon sins to pure eyes to behold evil. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all People to myself. This he said signifying by what death he should die. 
And isn't it interesting that he says, I, if I be lifted up, I'm not going to say too much about that, except that's interesting language. And some have connected that with the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. I, if I be lifted up, in other words, the resurrection and ascension of Christ was preceded by his being lifted up on a tree. In other words, apart from him dying, apart from the cross, apart from what was done on that tree, the resurrection and the ascension would not have occurred. And so everything tracks back to what happened on that cross. He was lifted up. And three, on the third day, after being put into the grave, he was lifted up. And 40 days later, he was lifted up. He ascended where he today reigns in glory for the sake of those for whom he gave himself. He knew what he had to do to get to where he wanted to be. And that was that glory that he shared with his father eternally to which he was returning in fullness of glory and with all of those that are included in that glory, the purpose, the eternal purpose of God. But you see, the suffering and death of the Christ, the Son of the living God, was not an accidental consequence of a world full of hate. That's what was sold in one of the articles that I read. It was just the culmination of a world full of hate. God had nothing to do with it. It was not a symbolic act or simply an example of love. No, beloved, it was the intentional provision of the triune God whose love, his everlasting love, moved him to condescend to be united with sinful humanity. Blow your mind trying to put that together. Yet without sin. And he pressed through every satanic obstacle to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he accomplished something on that cross. No, 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 no. He accomplished something for you on that cross. He accomplished something for me on that cross. He accomplished something for the world on that cross. He, he didn't, he didn't die and then say to the world, now do as I did and maybe you'll get into the kingdom. No, he did it. He did it. He accomplished it. And because Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, willingly denied Himself. I give it, He says. Abolish that abominable idea that God is some sort of 
cosmic child abuser. The only way that you can say that is if you separate the father and the son. But when you understand who God is, right? Father, son, spirit, you know that the son willingly engaged in that which he did. He willingly bore what he bore. And because he was obedient unto death, the father, the father, the father announced his glory and the glory of God. And so we have even in First Corinthians chapter 10, the kingdom, you know, he shall reign until until kingdoms of this world are all subdued. And when his kingdom is completed, he will turn it over to his father. And I have in my mind there that the father and son, that is when the fullness of that glory will be known and experienced by us who were part of that kingdom. All because of what Jesus Christ did. Raised the third day, testifying to His victory over the curse of sin and death. Believing sinners like you and me are now reconciled with God. United with Him in peace. Bound by His everlasting love. Nothing can separate us from Him. From Him. And therefore from His love. So brethren, we must never minimize the absolute necessity of what Jesus endured. Never speak in such a way in which you are minimizing what Jesus endured. The necessity of what He endured. Satan is still working to blind unbelievers in unbelief. And I believe this is one area in which he is seeking to do it. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. Well, how does that work? And I don't understand that. And our minds, we, we think according to the minds of men. Which Jesus said, Peter, that's what you were doing. And when you do that, you're going to fall into a ditch. We need to be mindful of the things of God. What He has revealed. And receive that. And I plead with you. I plead with you. You say, are you pleading with me, preacher? I'm pleading with you. In Christ's stead, I'm pleading with you. As if Christ were standing here Himself. I am not Christ. Don't misunderstand. But in His stead, as His ambassador, I plead with you. Be reconciled to God. Through faith. In Him who bore your sins to bring you into a forever relationship of peace with God. This message is for you. And so, Father, I pray.